Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. After that effusive praise, I, I, I think I ought to quit and go home. <laughs> uh, as you can see, Jan and I are old friends. In 1971, when ping pong was going on, uh, Jan uh, called me up and said, do you have anybody who can be interpreter? Uh, we didn't have any interpreters. And so I rounded up a few graduate students, uh, like Tom Gold and Perry Link uh, and Guy Alito, uh, all people that John Wheeler knows very well. Uh, and uh, they were the first interpreters for ping pong. And Jan and I have been uh, companions ever since. And one of the things that makes PIP such a great program, I mean, the idea of having Americans who know a lot about China take a role as public intellectuals is such a basic good idea that Japan, that Jan started implementing. But Jan is the person who knows everybody in the field, calls them up by, on the phone, and wants to know what they really think about the person they're recommending. And, and since uh, there are so many cautious people now in the world who don't want to write too many things or even send too many things in email, Jan always wants to get the truth and finds great people. And I think <clears throat> that's made the PIP a better program than other programs. And uh, is responsible for us getting such good people who are not only so qualified academically, but who can work together and really care about things. And they've created their community, much as the U.S.-China Committee has created its community. So I'm privileged to, to be there. Uh, and um, I'm privileged to see some old friends here like uh, John Wheeler and, and Ann Keatley, and uh, Keatley Solomon. Uh, was the guide to my first trip to China in 1973, uh, and uh, was a group of scientists, first scientific delegation that I had the good luck to be, be part of. Um, and so uh, I see many familiar faces, and it's a great joy to be here. <clears throat> um, I'd like to tell you about everything in the book, but uh, there's not quite enough time. Very so, thick book. <laughs> um, I, I thought I would. Uh, stress two, two themes uh, to start off with. One is the, that who's on top. And uh, the China, of course, was on top until 1895. And then uh, at the Sino-Japanese War, uh, Japan was the one on top. And Japan has been on top until, I would say, the period 2008 to 2014. That's, that's the period uh, I'm thinking of when China is now again on top and is likely to remain on top. So in a way, what we're seeing right now is a period um, <clears throat> when the relations uh, which have been dominated by Japan and where there are a lot of uh, Chinese feelings that that wasn't the proper way has uh, been uh, changed and now China, since China is the big economy and more influence in the world and more powerful, bigger army, uh, their relationship is 
fundamentally different was that when uh, Japan uh, passed China in 1895. <clears throat> so what I what I thought I would do is talk about three times when one country has really learned from each other. And the country that was behind was learning from the country that was ahead. Um, I think uh, that's one of the more interesting parts of, of the story I have to tell. Uh, of course, Japan and China now, the second and third largest economy in the world, are neighbors. And that relationship is so important. And I think we, we haven't given enough space in, in the American uh, intellectual attention area as it deserves. We talk about you know Europe and the United States, US, China, US, Japan, but we haven't done enough thinking about China-Japan relations. And here they are, they have these uh, long-term relationships. And in order to write this book, I had to learn about history. I'm not really a historian. I'm a, uh, originally trained as a sociologist working in contemporary society and then spread out to politics and economy. Uh, but for the last seven years where I worked on this, I've been reading about history. I need to be a little closer to the mic. This mic or the other mic or both of them? Sorry. Sorry about that. Um, thank you for telling me. So uh, I've been learning about history. And I don't read classical Chinese or classical Japanese. Uh, but I have had the good fortune that, that we've had now a lot of individual scholars who've done a lot of hard work. Josh Fogel is one of my favorites. Some of you may know Josh Fogel. He's done, he spent many years in Kyoto working with the greatest sinologists in Japan and uncovering un, uh, all the work that they have done and making it accessible in English and pulling it all together. And there, there are a lot of other scholars, both in China and Japan. And I do uh, get by in modern Chinese and Japanese. So I've read modern scholarship, although I haven't uh, going back to read the, the original sources. <clears throat> so the three periods when one country was learning uh, a, a lot from each other, uh, the first was in uh, 600 to 838 AD. The second was uh, 1890, uh, when Japan, of course, was learning from China. And the second was the period from 1895 to 1937. And the third uh, started in... Uh, uh, 1978, and you could name your ending. I, I, I trace up to 92 is a very intense uh, period of about uh, 13 years. <clears throat> so to go back to this first uh, period, um, and, and I think what, what I can do as a sociologist is in a way is put things together in a, in a broader social structure than a lot of the people who've done very detailed studies. And uh, what I've been able to do with this first period, 600 to 838, is to see that what Japan was really trying to do that time was to move from a society that had been dominated by clans and the, there was no large administrative structure that covered a broad geographical area. And there were about 30 clans. Uh, there was imperial clan, there was uh, the Soga clan, there were a lot of clans called Be that uh, specialize in certain military or other kind of uh, economic specialty. But they did not have a large administrative structure. And some of the people in the clans um, 
uh, Empress Suiko, uh, who came to power in in, uh, seven, uh, in uh, 593, decided that she wanted to expand, and she had, and her nephew Shotoku, Shotoku Taishi, they had the idea of learning from China about how you run a broader administrative structure. So this meant what they wanted to learn from China was really uh, all the things that would make it necessary to pull a country together. And so in the year uh, 600, uh, they sent a mission to Chang'an. Uh, it was still the Sui uh, dynasty at that time. The Sui uh, Wendi, the emperor, and uh, who had come to just come to power about the same time in uh, uh, 589 uh, was ruling over a structure that uh, covered uh, the whole uh, of uh, Chang'an and Chang'an had at that time perhaps a million people. So it was a large administrative city that governed a broad geographical area and had all the things that Japan needed if it wanted to have a broader administrative structure. So that what Japan was learning uh, were the basics of culture that would enable the rulers to spread out over a broader uh, geographical area. Uh, believe it or not, before 600, uh, Japan did not really have a written language. There were some little bits of Chinese that had begun to come in. But if you're going to cover a broader geographical area, you need contact. Uh, and you need to have some kind of rules. Uh, and so they went to uh, Chang'an, uh, and they sent missions there starting in the year 600. And on the average, uh, the, uh, every uh, 20, 30 years, they sent a mission for up until 838 <clears throat> when they broke those formal uh, negotiations. So I count that as sort of one period when they were really intense about their learning from uh, China. Uh, so they learned the written language, they brought in, there were some little teeny bits of the language that come uh, uh, over from China, but they were put to, pulled together in a more systematic way as the Soga clan uh, gradually began to try to build a, a broader administrative state. Then they also needed certain kind of rules, so the Taika reforms and uh, they were building uh, kind of administrative rules, which they were learning from uh, Changsha. And they were also uh, learning about how you lay out a city. Uh, until that time, Japan did not have a stable capital, but they laid out a stable capital in first in Nara. And then when some of the leaders, uh, 80, 90 years later, thought the, uh, the, the, the priests were getting too powerful, the, the monks, uh, they moved the capital to Kyoto. And Kyoto still has those numbered streets which are taken straight from Chang'an. Uh, the basic and the idea where the government relocated the north end of, the, of those streets that were there, all that was taken straight from Chang'an. Uh, in, in addition, uh, they wanted to have some kind of basis for legitimacy for the rulers. And so they brought in Buddhism, uh, because Buddhism at the time, although it started in India, it had become a, yeah? Sorry. They needed, a Buddhism had become, started in India, but become a Chinese religion. But it was linked to the, the uh, natural order, you know, to the heavens. And the name for emperor, after all, it was heaven. And 
and by linking yourself to the Buddhism and to the heavens, he gave kind of a legitimation. But also Confucianism was also a, a very basic uh, legitimation because it basically taught you respect your elder brother. It, it, it provided a base of authority. You respect the ruler and provided a kind of way of thought that would give legitimation to the central authority. And so that uh, became the underlying thought. Then the uh, Chinese, of course, had written dynastic histories. And so the Japanese, uh, they wrote the Kojiki and uh, Nihon Shoki, which were their kind of version of, of a dynastic history. And they, they even tried to do the Chinese one better. Instead of just tracing it back to the great founder of the dynasty, they wanted to go all the way back to the emperor. Um, and in Japanese culture, there was a little more emphasis on uh, linkage by birth than there was from the outside. Uh, so they traced it all the way back. And all the emperors, they had one line all the way back to Jimu Tenno. But it was basically came from the uh, uh, chronicles that the Chinese had done. That became the model of the way they developed it. Uh, <clears throat> then also architecture. The big Buddhist temples that you can find in Kyoto today uh, were introduced because they learned from China how to cover a broader area under one roof. And until that time, they'd been putting up posts in the ground, which rotted. And so they had kind of a cement structure that they put them on. And they had a way of rafting the beams and of linking them at the top so they could build those large temples that were possible because of what the Japanese learned from Chang'an. So uh, the quick summary of all that is that the, all the basic of Japanese culture, which uh, pervades Japan even till today, came from Japan. Some might... China. China came from China. So uh, some of my uh, Chinese friends say that when they go to Japan and see these signs and a lot of things, they feel quite comfortable, more than they do going to a lot of European or other countries, because there's a certain familiarity there. There is a kind of a cultural uh, resonance that still goes back to this early period that goes uh, very deep. <clears throat> so uh, the interesting thing is that it was such a small number of Japanese who were learning. There may be several hundred people at most who went every, uh, say, 20, 30 years. Uh, but they left monks who would stay behind. And those monks who were the scholars of the day learned a lot about those things. And so they became part of that local uh, culture and understood it very well. So, And because it was centrally organized and the learning was from the center, uh, it was uh, incorporated and gradually put into practice. And even though it took over 200 years, it was not uh, like it is today. <clears throat> uh, today, of course, uh, last year you had 8 million Chinese who visited Japan, about uh, over 25,000 a day average. Uh, and that's more than the number of Japanese who visited China from 600 to 838. So it was a small, uh, the amazing thing is that it was a really small number of people who learned this culture that then became Japanese culture uh, through these missions and through leaving monks who would then bring it back and then be incorporated into the Japanese society. Okay, now I'm going to leap clear up to the Sino-Japanese War.
uh, which is the next big time of learning from one country to another. <clears throat> there wasn't that much learning during, you might say, the Middle Ages uh, relationship. There are a lot of interesting things happening, which I do go to into a chapter. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, until 1895, the Chinese basically looked down on Japan. Uh, they thought it was a pipsqueak group of little islands out there and didn't have anything that was much of interest. And one of the reasons the Japanese won the war is that they had such good information about what was going on in China. They had, uh, the Japanese soldiers had maps in their pockets and they could read the maps of what was going on in what is now Manchuria. Uh, and the China, they knew more about the local areas in China than the Chinese did. Uh, the, Don't look at me. Uh, the troops, uh, they were, uh, so the Japanese troops knew more about the geography there than the Chinese. Chinese, uh, they uh, had written, Noriko Kamachi wrote a wonderful book about Huang Yinshun, who was the first minister in Japan, uh, uh, worked in the first embassy in Japan in the 1870s, wrote the best book in Chinese about Japan, and it wasn't even published. I mean, there was not enough interest to publish it. And suddenly in 1895, these little squirts, uh, those jerks, uh, beat us in a battle, and suddenly there was interest in going to, J to Japan. <clears throat> but the nature of the learning was really very different than what the Japanese learning in that early period had described. In this second period of learning, uh, they were individuals. China was not united. It was all spread out. But because the examination system fell apart in 1905, uh, it wasn't clear what you wanted to do, uh, how to get started in the world. But somehow the West was, knew about all kinds of things, and Japan was cheaper than the West. You could learn about the West through Japan. Uh, and so there were more Chinese students in Japan studying in that period, uh, particularly after the Russo-Japanese War, than any other country, uh, students in any other country. So there were as many as 10,000 Chinese students in Japan in 1905. Nothing else in the world compared in numbers of students and in all kinds of fields. Uh, take the military field, not just Chiang Kai-shek, but uh, most of the people who were prominent in the KMT military leadership in the 1930s were graduate Japanese military academies. Uh, <clears throat> Then you say, well, maybe they were all a bunch of nationalists. John Lai studied in Japan also. And then take the literary world. The whole literary world of China of the 1920s and 30s, who were some of the great people? Uh, Lu Xun, Zhou Zuoren, his brother, uh, Niu Dafu, uh, Guomaro, all studied in Japan. Guomaro's been there for about 20 years. Uh, all the modern Chinese literary movement of the 1930s was basically set up by people who had studied in Japan. Now, the same was true, I mean, where did they learn Marxism? Uh, they learned it from uh, Japanese uh, translations of Marx. Uh, the word socialism, they learned from Japan. Uh, communism, they learned those words from Japan. Uh, <clears throat> so it was really an extraordinary breadth of learning in all directions. It, it was not organized, it was not centrally led. China, China was not that united at that time. But a lot of fa families that had bright kids and had enough money to get them to Japan, sent their sons uh, to Japan. 
And so, uh, and of course, the people, uh, Sun Yat-sen uh, and Kong Yue-wei, Liang uh, Qiqiao, had all spent uh, time in Japan around the turn of the century. So Japan really played a very basic role, probably as basic, uh, it was, China was not united, it was all spread out and it didn't cover every single village. But in terms of breadth and impact, that second period of learning from Japan uh, from uh, 1895 when they started sending people until 1937 when war really broke out. Some people say it broke out in 31 with the Manchurian incident. Uh, but by 37, certainly, uh, it was not easy to send students again to Japan. But during that period, short period of time, uh, not centrally directed, very uh, spread out, they learned a tremendous amount. Then the third period <clears throat> is uh, the period uh, of Deng Xiaoping from 1978. And I, I draw 92 as one way to end that period because it was so intense during that period. It's a relatively brief period, but it was so intense. Um, Deng came to the United States, as Jan remembers, and, and uh, Anne and some other people here, uh, in January uh, 1979. In October, he went to Japan, just before that. And he went to Japan, and when he went to Japan, he went to visit a number of places. <clears throat> there might be models of what Japan, uh, what China could learn. Uh, he uh, went to the Japan Steel uh, Factory at Kimitsu, across the harbor. And uh, that, of course, was the model of Baoshan. It was already getting started, but uh, it became, uh, with his help, you know, the, uh, the Japanese were willing to put, it, put their efforts into it. Uh, as you know, now Japan, China makes what? Maybe about half the steel in the world, about a million, uh, hundred million, about a million tons. Uh, at that time, maybe 20, 30 million tons they were making. And Kimitsu was making almost as much steel as all of China. Uh, but after learning from Japan, it, that completely changed around. Um, he also uh, wrote on the Shinkansen, and uh, when he's writing on the Shinkansen... Not uh, everybody knows. That's uh, the Japanese bullet train. That's the Japanese bullet train. Shinkansen, uh, you're saying in, in Chinese. Uh, it was... Uh, at the time, uh, China had no fast trains. Now have they about as, again, about as much as the rest of the world combined. Uh, but uh, some people thought that uh, Chinese had fawned too much on Japan, and Deng was not going to fawn. Uh, but he also didn't want to downplay it. So when he was asked his comment on, on the Shinkansen line, he said it's very fast. Uh, <laughs> he recognized the speed, but he wasn't, wasn't fawning. Uh, but he was going to learn about it, and, and he arranged that they did. He also visited an automobile plant. It was Nissan. At the time, they just introduced robots in their Kamiya factory, and he went to see that. Uh, then he went down to Osaka uh, to see Matsushita. In those days, before all the modern telecommunications, uh, electronics was big. I mean, they wanted to get TV, and uh, Matsushita had, had been in China some in the 1920s and 30s. He wanted to get Matsushita uh, in uh, into China quickly and to help it form model for, for the electronics industry 
which began to take off. And so uh, two years later, when the Japan did a public opinion poll, how many Japanese have favorable impressions of China? It was 78%. Uh, in 1910, 1914, it went down almost to 10%. Uh, about 90% had negative feelings, as the same way the Chinese felt about Japan. It was mutually very bad. That's when I started to work on this book, is when they had almost 90% of each population had terrible images of the other. But after Deng's visit, the desire of the Japanese to help was great. And during the 90s, I remember going, going through some factories in China at the time that had big signs of study Japan. We were introducing quality control Japanese style. Uh, it, it really a very, it had a very Im big impact. And of course, uh, as China became patriotic and they tried to rally the troops, uh, particularly uh, after 2000, uh, the uh, relations grew worse. Uh, and uh, so we, we don't have uh, as much recognition in China as the Japanese think they should have. Um, <clears throat> I've gone on maybe a little too much with those things of learning from each other. but. Maybe I'll, what I'll do is I'll leap to now to current situation, and then maybe the question period people can ask what they want to. Um, in the current period, now, of course, it's the United States that has terrible relationship with China. Uh, and when I started my book, it was Japan that had the, the worst relationships with China. And why have relationships uh, changed? I think one way of thinking about it, and, and people haven't quite put it this way, but I, as I think about it, I think it's probably the, the best explanation, is that from this period from about 2008 to 2014, when China was passing uh, Japan, that was a very disturbing period in the relationship, and both were very, especially very tense and uh, very upset. In 2008, you had the uh, Beijing Olympics, which were the best and the biggest Olympics ever. And you also had the financial crisis. Uh, so the Asia financial crisis, which China did pretty well on. So China didn't have to look up to Japan and the West as much as it did. And they could see that pretty soon their economy was going to be bigger than the size of Japan's. 2010, World Bank declares the size of the Chinese economy is bigger than the size of the Japanese economy. <clears throat> and in two, 2010, you had uh, this horrible incident of the ship, a uh, Jap uh, Chinese ship uh, rammed into a, a Jap Japanese ship uh, and created a huge, it was the aftermath of that where Japan, China became so tough on Japanese businesses and they wanted to show really who was boss and they were gonna make the Japanese cave in uh, and finally, they, they arrested people and they, uh, the masses, the Chinese masses, uh, trashed Japanese shops in China, and Japan finally gave, caved in. In 2012, two years later, the Japanese uh, uh, islands and the Senkakus were sold from a private company to the country. It was called nationalization. And again, it wasn't the incident so much, it was, it was badly handled in Japan. Uh, but it was China's response that became so tough afterwards that it was just absolutely awful. Uh, and then after 2014, uh, they finally began to draw uh, 
Xi Jinping and Abe met. I think one of the reasons that Abe was able to carry off this change in Japan is that he he had the patriotic base. Before that time, uh, Hatoyama Yukio uh, had, uh, when he was prime minister, he first his first visit was to, to China uh, before visiting the United States, and he wanted to show that he was a good friend of China uh, as his uh, grandfather, uh, his father, had tried to do in the mid-50s his father, right, John? Uh, the Hatayama was uh, in the mid-fifties. That was Yukio's father, right? Uh, was um, so th at that time he was trying to show uh, that he was really friendly with China, but that didn't have the political base. The need to have friendship, you need to have your conservative base behind you, and then to gradually move in a pragmatic way. And that's what Abe has done which I think has made it possible on the Japanese side to improve the relationship. And on the Chinese side, uh, <clears throat> I think the Japanese are probably right. that the Part of the reason the relationship became so bad was in the uh, 1990s with the patriotic education campaign in Japan. After Tiananmen, uh, Deng Xiaoping felt that the way to uh, strengthen China would be, be teach patriotism. It was no longer the socialist revolution. It is no longer a class struggle. But what would unite China was patriotism. And so when they began teaching it, it didn't start out as that anti-Japanese. But the, the thing that went over best with the Chinese public were the memories of World War II. And so in the mid-1990s, there was a lot of discussion and a lot of publicity, a lot of movies, uh, a lot of uh, child's games, and it worked, and uh, people became very anti-Japanese, and there was more of a public outcry against Japan than there had been in the years just before that. So that continued, and I think that underpinned <clears throat> the incidents that happened in uh, 2010, 2012, when relationships were so bad. Um, and uh, I think that, that China has now decided that it's a way to pull Japan a little bit away from uh, the United States uh, if they can form a little bit better relations. And since 2014, they tried to quiet things down, avoid uh, collisions in the Senkaku, what the Chinese call the Diaoyu Islands. Uh, and uh, they've, they've succeeded to some extent. But now it's the United States that's undergoing this being passed by China, just as Japan underwent that from 2008 to 2014. And I think it's tougher for us. We've never been passed before, and we're so used to being so strong. And we have such strong feelings against communism and authoritarianism, inhumane treatment, uh, that I think it's really very hard for us and I think in this, this new kind of situation, Japan, in some ways, is in better shape to deal with the new strong China than the United States. The Japanese are not going to give up the American alliance. With a strong Chinese army out there, uh, there's no way with one-tenth the population of China and with a strong Chinese economy that the Japanese are going to be able to match the Chinese military capacity. So they'll keep the alliance. But they will want to have a little more freedom from somebody like Trump uh, and would like a little more wiggle room. And I think the Chinese now seem 
uh, I feel that this is an opportunity to give the Japanese a little more wiggle room and make the alliance just a little bit uh, looser. So as you probably know, Xi Jinping is now talking of having a visit to Japan next year when cherry blossoms bloom, and the relationship with China and Japan is likely to bloom a little more. I don't think they're going to become close friends, but my what I say in my book is I hope that uh, they, they will not. They say, uh, you know, uh, economics is hot and uh, politics is cold. I think uh, politics can become warm. That's that's my hope that they can begin to deal with each other more, much more on a realistic basis. They're going to be close, intimate, lovable friends. They have an awful lot of culture in common, but I think that they can develop. There is a potential developing a better working relationship, and <clears throat> what my hope is that my book will be used by some leaders in the two countries uh, who think that that's a good idea. I don't have any naive notion that a book alone will change things, but I think if, if some people, you know, in China and Japan want to want to do something to improve the relationship, I hope that my book will be able to be useful. Thank you very much. very quick run through this very weighty book, which um, provides an enormous amount of detail to back up those broad strokes that Ezra just gave us. And I urge you all to go out and buy a copy, and then right outside this door, uh, cheaper than you can buy it uh, in the bookstore or maybe even on Amazon, and Ezra will be here to um, sign it for you. But before we let you out to do that, uh, let's open the floor for questions. Please stand up and only ask a question. We don't have enough time for narrative comments from everyone, but we welcome questions and just tell us who you are. And wait for the microphone. My name is Ta Hong. My name is Ta Hong and uh, my question is, what do you think are the legacies of uh, the Japanese colonization of Manchuria? I skimmed a bit of, about that chapter in your book and I saw that um, it was the first time in Manchuria when people started seeing like electric lights and more modern transportation that were probably like in, in port from Tokyo or uh, Osaka. So. Um, and elsewhere in China, people had not experienced this before. So my question is, you know, what are the legacies of that post um, 1945, well not uh, 1945, as well as um, reverberated to this day? I, and the Japanese felt, and I think quite properly, that the, in their colonialism, that they were trying to modernize. They were trying to help Asians meet the dangers of those horrible Western imperialists. Of course, they were imperialists. Some of the things they did were worse. But they also did much more to modernize. If you take three places where they had those colonies, <coughs> uh, Taiwan, Korea, Manchuria, I think the results are somewhat different. Taiwan did not have a nation before, and the resistance was eliminated within two or three years. Uh, when Nogi, uh, General Nogi raced through and clamped down, uh, then things were pacified. So the people and the colonialists didn't have much of a tense relationship. And Taiwan modernized, and particularly after the Kuomintang came in in 49, 
A lot of people in Taiwan felt that the Kuomintang was even worse than the Japanese. So historical retrospect, the Japanese weren't so bad. Uh, and uh, there were a lot of people who got higher education under the Japanese in Taiwan and went on to uh, Japanese universities. <coughs> Uh, like the uh, young way. And so they're, they're really quite positive relations. I think in Korea, you had some of the same modernization, but in Korea, you had a strong national base that went way back. And so the, there was resistance and feeling that the, it was a united country. Taiwan was not a united country the way Korea was. And so there was resistance all the way through. There was a 1919 uprising, uh, and uh, there was terrible tension. And the Japanese had to use a lot more force in keeping the Koreans under control. So that relationship was much tense. I think the Manchuria was somewhere in between those two. The, it had not been very well developed. It had not uh, had the, um, uh, much of a Manchurian, uh, well-developed Manchurian national sense. And so I think what happened in Manchuria, the and of course, uh, the Japanese did bring a lot of modernization uh, into Manchuria. They, the Anshan, you know, mines and so forth, uh, steel and iron, uh, and they built up a lot of machinery. Uh, <clears throat> so I think it's interesting that part of the legacy is that of the China specialist of the Japan specialists in China, a very high proportion are from the Northeast, because people who learned Japanese in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, they could still, and I went and visited some of those Japan centers in Manchuria, and <clears throat> there are quite a few people who, after many years of uh, no contact with Japan, were so delighted after 78 when they could have contact again because they, they had absorbed some Japanese culture. So they're, uh, you know, sometimes I've estimated maybe half of the good China specialists, uh, Japan specialists in China are from Manchuria, from the Northeast, from that legacy. Either people who had learned Japanese as a kid or even kids of parents who were, they spoke some in the home. So I think there is quite an interesting legacy. Of course, the Japanese were cruel in Manchuria, as they were in many other places. There are a lot of people who hate uh, what the Japanese did there and their biological experiments and so forth. Uh, there are a lot of hatred of Japanese. But I think in, in that continuum of, say, colony that does well, Taiwan, colony that does terrible, um, uh, Korea, and I've put Manchuria sort of in between. Long-winded academic uh, presentation. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Max Kwa from UI. Uh, I'm just wondering, as a former national intelligence officer, according to your bio on the paper, I was curious to know uh, your thoughts on whether a U.S. sitting president should visit um, the, Chidor the Chidori Gafuchi National Cemetery, uh, which was visited by Prime Minister Shinzo Abe this uh, past August 15, um, which I was told is like, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers in Japan. Thank you. Uh, I, would, I was not involved in giving that kind of specific advice. Uh, I was uh, worked for the U.S. government as National Intelligence Officer 
1995. Unfortunately, I was already pretty old uh, when I went, went uh, to Seattle. I think I was about 65. Uh, 63. celebrated his 89th birthday so, two months ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was 63 when I went. Uh, so I had not been involved in any kind of secretive work until that time. So I was somewhat new, and I learned a lot. Uh, and uh, I, I, I learned that there are a lot of serious, hardworking people in the intelligence community in Washington, and my friends tell me they're going to survive the Trump era, uh, and I, I think they will. Uh, in terms of if, so what the advice I would give a new president would not be from my days of intelligence. My job there was to try to describe what was going on, and our job was to talk about information, not policy. Uh, sometimes information could, could stretch over, and if you gave certain information, you know, they're very strong, and if you try to attack them, you'll run into a hell of a lot of problem. Uh, that's not, not policy, that's, that's information. Uh, so, you know, it, it has some implications for policy. Uh, but if I were giving advice uh, to an American president, I would say, find some way to show that you have an understanding of the feelings of people. And uh, so uh, if you go to a place, a show where Chinese have suffered and done good things, I think that would be a good thing for the American, for American president to do, yes. That's my personal view. And what are your feelings about Japanese leadership going to the Class A war criminal sites? I think that uh, the Japanese uh, leaders have apologized for World War II, but they haven't done it with the depth and the thoroughness that the Germans have done it. I think that's partly because after World War II, they didn't have the close, con you know, the Germans and the French had to work together right after World War II in order to get their economies going. And in 1945-6, uh, a lot of Japanese felt they needed to have economic relations with China to, keep, to survive and Dulles and other Americans wouldn't let them. So we kept the Chinese and Japanese apart, and that was American doing, uh, <clears throat> until you know, 1971, 1972. And uh, therefore, they didn't have a chance, the leaders of the countries, to resolve the problems the way the French and Germans were forced to right after the war. And that became more difficult a lot of the generation of leaders who were leaders in the late 70s and 80s say, you know, I wasn't an adult in the World War II. You know, or someone would later say, I wasn't even born then. How should I apologize? Uh, so it wasn't, and it wasn't the economic necessity. But I think there's also, <clears throat> there's something deeper about the way Willie Brandt bowed down uh, to the uh, Jews. Uh, and the, the, the Japanese, in general, <clears throat> I think um, they haven't had that depth of feelings of guilt in the average person. They, they have done the formal apologies, uh, but I think the, the dominant mood in Japan is, that's over. You know, the Americans, you don't ask them why they killed so many American Indians. Why do you keep ask, asking us for crimes? That's 70 years beyond. Gone. We, our generation had nothing to do with it. Let's forget about it and get on. I think that probably is a dominant attitude uh, in Japan. Bill. 
I'm Bill Armbruster, retired journalist. Um, is, is there much resentment in Japan today at how China has now surpassed them as the second largest economy? And also, are many Japanese young people going to China to study? I wouldn't say resentment against China for passing them. They, they resent that, that China does not acknowledge what Japan has done for them. They feel that in the 1980s and 1990s, Japan did so much uh, to teach uh, in all these basic industries uh, that they have carried on uh, apologies and the Chinese have not acknowledged that. So they feel upset that they have not acknowledged it enough and not shown appreciation uh, for what they have done. I, th I think that's the, the, but the fact that China surpassed them, I think they recognize it's a bigger country. Uh, and uh, China has studied hard. Sometimes it's stolen secrets, but I think that the basic story is that they've learned from, they've sent people everywhere to learn every way they can. I think the Japanese know that. Um, <clears throat> another way to put it, I think, is that not only did the, the Japanese economy, uh, well, they, they, not only did they defeat China after 1895, but they looked down on them. Uh, when Fukuzawa Yukichi said in the, in the 1880s, uh, let's leave uh, Asia, Part of what he meant is they don't have that much to teach us anymore. Europe is the is they they I think the Japanese began to look down on Japan and Chinese culture at that point, and I think that they have looked after the fifties and sixties and seventies when they started teaching China they felt China was way behind, but I think what they now know is that there are a lot of Chinese who are caught up in science and technology. There are a lot of first rate people, so I. So I think that China, the, the Japanese attitude toward China is not only that they're a bigger economy, but it's a more respectful one of a lot of the leaders. They're, not, that, they're, they're probably almost as upset about the political system as Americans are. They're not happy with that lack of freedom. They're not happy the way they crack down on the Uyghurs. Uh, but in terms of uh, Chinese economic capacity, I think, I think they recognize the Chinese have done a lot. They stole our secrets. Uh, they stole our, uh, they didn't give us all the fast trains and, and uh, they don't pay enough royalties for all the technology they've gotten from us. Uh, but that they worked hard and they've learned their lessons and that they are very bright and hardworking and learning from around the world. I think that's the way they feel. Norman McRae Foundation. Um, I always like to be optimistic about youth's future, particularly with the amount of technology that's coming up. So my question would be in the 2020s, do you think there's a good match of what the Japanese and the Chinese actually need from technology? Because, for example, the Japanese have a rather elderly population, so they maybe need a lot more of technology health advantages and some of those things the Chinese could be very good at and vice versa. So I'm, I'm just wondering on the most optimistic version of how things could go between China and Japan, do you have some comments on the 2020s? I think there, there is a lot of room for technical cooperation. I think the, 
my overall impression is that a lot of careful work, the Japanese are awfully good at, at precision and uh, getting it just right and looking after all the details and managing all that. And uh, the Chinese, maybe, and these are you know, rough generalizations because there are lots of exceptions and everything. And a lot of the Chinese, I think, are crave and, and leap. And in high physics and science, uh, space, so forth, I think the Chinese are, are extremely good. I think in, in high technology now and communications, they're both going to be very good at it. It's true that the Japanese are probably a little more concerned with robots for senior citizens uh, than the Chinese on the average. They're both, of course, concerned about health issues, uh, as we all are. And I think there's going to be cooperation, collaboration in all those areas. I think there's, I think there's a lot of room. And uh, I think a lot of the uh, Japanese that have set up labs in China, they make use of that combination of uh, very, uh, you know, uh, good, uh, right Chinese who work in those factories, and yet Japanese who are very good at managing, too. There are still hands up, but we have gone beyond the witching hour. And so I was going to call on you, but I think the idea of ending on a positive note uh, where you think there can be cooperation in the future is probably where we should leave it. And please join me in thanking Ezra. Thank you.